have to read this the third time. Oh, God. Oh, goody. All right. Hello, this is Liz Rocher from The Good Fight. And because Jeff Francoeur hasn't taken naked batting practice for the Phillies yet, I have to do this intro for the Amazing Avenue Audio, which is an awesome Mets podcast. And the Phillies are terrible, and Cole Hamels isn't even worth Henry Owens. And you are listening to Amazing Avenue Audio on Blog Talk Radio. And the Mets are good, and the Phillies are bad. podcast of your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro, and with me this week are Brian Renzi and Steve Sippa. Gentlemen, Dylan G, making another rehab start this week in Binghamton, even after joining the team in Pittsburgh, which is probably unnecessary, but allows me to see Matt Harvey on Friday. That is more information than you actually need to answer this question, which I'm about to ask you, as we do at the beginning of the show, but Dylan G has some time to kill in Binghamton this week. What should he do? Well, uh, I'm. I'll take this one first, Steve. If that's cool. Um, yeah, uh, my my advice would be to become a slumlord, actually, because uh, real estate's pretty cheap up there, and there's hotel always rooms gonna... are not. By the way, okay. Well, this is an interesting thing to know. I go to a lot of Mets affiliates or cities where Mets affiliates play on the road, and Binghamton is one of the more expensive places to get a hotel room. You got. You should check out some Airbnb. That's the way to go. Yeah, I always get a little dicey about the Airbnb thing, especially in Binghamton. Yeah, you know, it's people are people, though. You're like, advocating it, becoming a slum lord here. So, how good can the Airbnb <laughs> options be? But continue, well, Ryan. All right. Yeah, I, I'm just saying. Like, I've I've looked into it a little bit myself, and feel like you know, real estate's depressed. You got a constant stream of college students coming through there. Like, it's. It's easy money, like, uh, other than the fact that you might have to deal with, uh, you know, like, roof collapses due to too much snow and all that sort of stuff. But otherwise, like, I I don't know. I'd look into it if I were him. It would pass the time. I feel like flooding is a bigger issue there than, uh, than roof collapses from snow. Steve, do you have a less capitalist uh, suggestion here, hopefully? Uh, well, I went on to the Binghamton Department of Commerce website to see oh, what kind of stuff there is. Lord. <laughs> <laughs> so he, he could e- he could either go visit the Binghamton Wall of Star- Walk of Stars and see such famous people's Rod Serling, or he could just grab a keg and party with the college kids. I mean, oh, I don't know about Jesus. I don't know about you, but one of those sounds interesting and the other does not. So I have spent a fair amount of time at Binghamton in the last few years. More than I care to admit, maybe. Or actually, the exact amount I care to admit, because I read about it. But um, I'm going to say he should have all of his meals in the Lost Dog Cafe. I usually find one restaurant in every Eastern League city I can eat at. And the uh, Binghamton one is a Lost Dog Cafe. You can walk around downtown, too. It's not bad. And there's a bar directly across the street from the stadium, from Nice Egg, that isn't awful. I've only ever had 
like espresso there because they have a nice espresso machine because I've usually been working but they do have a good beer selection a lot of Omegong stuff um, some Sarnak I think too Southern Tier on tap there so whatever that bar is you can go to that too now in your trips to Binghamton have you seen the Walk of Stars? no <laughs> what are you uh, I go to a game, I watch Brad Holt pitch, and that's usually been my experience in Binghamton. Mm. This is episode 119 of Amazing Avenue Audio. It's the, uh, David Far, uh, David Wright has gone to live with a nice family at a farm upstate edition. That's where we're going this. This one's going to be a little blue, guys. It's going to get a little dark. I am pouring as much iced coffee down my throat so I actually get through this podcast. Um, as you may have gathered from the intro to this week's show, uh, we had Liz Rocher over to watch the Mets-Phillies Memorial Day game. We're recording this on Monday night. And she lost our bet, so she had to read an intro to the podcast that you already listened to. But in the process of watching uh, Bartolo Colon, Wilmer Flores, and Lucas Duda at all, uh, we may have tied a few on. But there's a lot to cover. It's a, been a busy week in Metsland. Kind of a depressing week. Starting first and foremost with David Wright having the uh, back condition generally associated with senior citizen males. Or females, I suppose. Old people. He has an old person's back. So we'll talk a little bit about that. We'll talk about the Mets offense, which is just swinging like they have old people's backs. Severino Gonzalez starts notwithstanding. And we'll see your emails. This might be a long episode, it might be a short episode. I don't know and can't really hazard a guess at this point in time. So we'll see where we are at the end of the show. I'll also plug my Pitch Talks appearance coming up on this Thursday. And we'll do another triumphant IFK Gothenburg update. That's all things you have to look forward to. We start with the bad news and uh, David Wright's back doesn't work so well. So, what happens now? We're snakebit. We're snakebit baby. I baby, believe is the yeah. exact quote, yeah. Yeah, we've um, been through this last week. Mm. We are snakebit baby. Uh, I like that the Ruben Tejada is going to be get multiple looks at third base, lasted exactly one day. As Danny Muno started there today, which doesn't make much more sense than starting Ruben Tejada there. But I really can't get into sort of really getting angry about roster management at this point because everyone on the team is hurt is what it comes down to. I mean, even the guys that are in the lineup, several of them today are hurt. They're injured. Lucas Duda has a bad hamstring. Juan Ligares has multiple things wrong with him. Um, but only the things that affect his defense. So, you know, he can still swing a bat. So that's that's good. I'm in a good mood about that. But the Mets won. They're not, you know... They're not dead in the water, as Terry Collins says. But what should... Let's say we write... Let's be generous. We'll write off David Wright until the All-Star break. What should the Mets do in the medium term? They, they've they not shown the inclination to do so, but they should just move Flores over to third base and start Tejada at short. I mean, you're going to get... That's crazy better, talk, Steve. That's crazy well, talk. You're going to get better defense from Flores at third, and you're going to get better defense from Tejada at short. And, you know, switching the two around in, in an experiment where you know it doesn't seem like it's going to work out well, uh, 
I just don't see the reason, the, the point to keep doing that at this point. Are you suggesting this team should win pitching and defense? That sounds crazy. Nah. Brian, do you have any crazy ideas? Uh, well, I mean, that would be the first one uh, that I had on the docket as well, but they seem pretty committed to having Flores be shortstop for at least this year. I've, I'm ne- I've never really been sold that they really think he's going to be a long-term replacement. Or what there. makes you think that when they moved him off shortstop in St. Lucie? <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so you know, uh, I guess they're they're trying to get Flores uh, some some sort of uh, continuity and some sense of oh, we're behind you, buddy. But really, like you could, the same thing could be served by getting him over to third, where he doesn't have to worry about footwork as much and and that should hopefully make his throws a little more straight and and things like that but um then i guess the issue there is if you get herrera back um you probably want herrera in there at at second and then you still want murphy's bat in the lineup so um unless you want to jerk him around as a super sub which i'm fine with but i don't i don't manage the clubhouse um yeah I, i can i guess i can see why they might keep uh, Flores at shortstop for the, the time being. I don't mind Muno for the minute, see how how that goes. I mean, he seemed like a, a, the most cromulent third base option out of uh, what we've had. I'm trying from, to remember what, where he actually played in college. I think he might have been a college third baseman, but I can never... I just assume they're all college shortstops. So I, I, just he, thought, I assume he was a shortstop at Louisville? Was he Louisville or Cal State Fullerton? I tend to... Con- Confused him. He was at Fresno, Cal, uh, Cal State Fresno. Okay, I think he was a shortstop there, but that usually doesn't mean anything. But yeah, he can probably hack it at third. Yeah, well I saw him play a couple. I just saw him play a couple games with the fifty ones in Tacoma up at third, and yeah, he looked reasonable for sure. Definitely better than like Murphy, who you know looks like a Looney Tunes cartoon anywhere on the field except for first base. But. Um, yeah, uh, it, you know he he booted like one ball, but like for the most part he he looked he looked the part anyway, passable, um, and better than yeah Tejada. Um, so I don't know. Hopefully, maybe he can draw a couple walks <laughs> or something to to add to the offense. Yeah, that's it, that's in his profile, yes. <laughs> um, but yeah, otherwise you're if if you're not gonna make the the permanent move or you know I guess you gotta wait to find out if if right how how bad Wright's condition is before you move Flores over. If I mean if you if he's really gone for most of the year or the the year, I think you should yeah move Flores to third. I mean they do have it's just days when they don't hit three home runs off Phillies pitching. This lineup is just I. I think with with Dude and Ligaris out yesterday, I tweeted out, and yeah, I'm going to recycle my tweets on the podcast, what of it, because it's a great tweet. Um, I said the lineup made uh, Bertal Brecht wither with this contempt for the audience, and I watched the whole game, and it was it was brutal. It was a Brechtian, ex- Brechtian experience watching them just get lit up by the uh, Pirates with nothing to offer. They'd actually score a run on a base hit, which they didn't do on Friday or Saturday a wild pitch and a fielder's choice. But this offense is not fun to watch when they're not playing the Phillies. They only play the Phillies 18 times a year. 
Yeah, well, I mean, for sure, coming into this year, I, I was really wondering how the runs were going to be scored, even with Darno and and Wright in the lineup. To be honest, uh, I, I feel like Kadir's right about at the low end of, of what I expected out of him for the year. Um, and yeah, we we definitely need to to upgrade offensively, and if not, as you know, Steve's saying, yeah, move move toward just getting the best defensive unit out there and hope to scratch out a couple of, you know, 2-1 wins. I do think uh, they have the opportunity to move uh, Flores to third base long-term. It's something they've been wanting to do before at the major league level. He played a lot of third last time Wright was injured for an extended period of time. Um, And it's the position where I've seen him at the best, at his best in the minors, where his skill set Skill set fits best. You don't want to consider him a first baseman, which is eh, fine at least for now. Um, you know, if he's going to run into twenty home runs this year, which hey, it looks like he might. He might hit two fifty and run to twenty home runs. That plays at most places. If you're not a minus fifteen defender there, which he probably is at shortstop, but not so much at third base. So that's a well doesn't change the overall look of the lineup. You know, any place you can gain a, a few runs even defensively because good lord watching this team day in and day out just you know makes you reassess your priorities in life. Flores is going to end up leading the team in home runs. Oh yeah, I know that's a stone cold lock. That is a yeah. stone cold fucking <laughs> lock. Uh, it's like somehow. Like Dudo hit like 20 and somehow Flores will still... Dudo hits... You know, forty-five doubles, and Flores won't hit like ten doubles, but he'll get enough to go over the par- over the fence there. That'll just be assuming that Flores hits that's between you know twenty twenty-five home runs. If he hits, you know, and look, if he hits two fifty and twenty home runs, play him look, somewhere, absolutely. Right. That's what I was to say. Do you think that regardless of where he plays, if he hits, you know, say two fifty and hits twenty to twenty-five home runs, some in that range, does he get you know? Do, do people now look at him as a legitimate? you know, baseball player. I mean, it's a major league bat. I've always thought it's a major league bat. I give Flores shit on here and Twitter and elsewhere. I've always thought it's a major league bat. I'm not going to put a guy, I had him in my top, I had him fourth in the system going into 2014. I'm not putting a guy there that I don't think is a major league bat. I think he can hit. He looked terrible in early April, but he's adjusted and he's kind of, he's selling out for that sort of pull power. I don't think I've seen him hit a ball to the opposite field all year for a base hit, but that's fine. If he can make that work at the major league level, he has some bat control. That's fine. He has two fifteen and twenty home runs. That's like, but you don't play. You don't play the. You don't play JJ Hardy if he's a minus fifteen shortstop. <laughs> you play JJ Hardy at shortstop because he gives you that and can pick it a little bit. I mean, if you get Ruben Tejada's glove and hit like that, sign him up. He'd be one of the best players on the team. Sure. He's not a major league shortstop. <laughs> I don't know how to say this. And people are going to quote UZR. People are going to quote defensive run saved. And we had this conversation in the last couple weeks on the show, but she's like, he's not a major league shortstop. Put him in a place where he can succeed. And it's fine. And now you have that opportunity. Put him at third. The team will be marginally better to watch. Yeah, you might also, you know, think about throwing him out in left field and, and start uh, the... Yeah. No. No, he's so... <laughs> he actually... So here's the thing about Flores' speed. I got him at four three eight, which is 
really fast for him. And I know the prospect hate man had him at like four four three. Is I don't know if it, it's it's hard to, but not impossible to, you know, get a full grade jump on your run at his age. But he is in better shape. If he's a four 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 five runner now, you could consider playing him in left. But no, you really can't. He's, but you really can't. No, it's he's not a good slow. idea. He's you so slow. Pick. The problem, the problem with that is he's just so slow getting out of his crouch at shortstop right. that I can't imagine him actually getting to balls in left field. And he's never no, played I, there, so his roots could be whatever. I, I, you guys cut me off with the punchline. You know, it was just, uh, you know, this is the Mets, and I was also hoping that maybe we could get a, a like a year early on the the Kadir Granderson platoon in the outfield somewhere. You know, like. Um, that, that's well, when we did that, the, that's we the only did, reasoning. We did the live show at Foley's in Tedberg. Made that same joke. It's like, when have you ever heard of a of a shortstop prospect? They like you can't move to a corner outfield <laughs> position because he's so slow. <laughs> like that doesn't work at shortstop for a reason. Ah, we're talking about more floors at shortstop again. We should stop that. We're talking about more floors at third base, which is more palatable to me personally. But yeah, David Wright is a bad back, and I've said for most of the offseason, but especially after sort of the Kadire signing and nothing else happened, that the table stakes for a competitive 2015 Mets team was a bounce-back season from David Wright, which, to be fair, we got for eight games. And now, probably not much more than that. So what are the Mets' options for adding offense? Short of, oh, Travis Darno might be back in two weeks. That's pretty much it, unfortunately. I've taken yeah. to, like, yelling more than I should on our internal list about this, so I don't really want to do it on the podcast as well, but, you know, realistically, another thing I've harped on the podcast, besides the David Wright bounce back being a necessary thing, is that the window of this team, when you're signing guys in their mid-30s to medium to long-term deals, and with Michael Kadire and Curtis Granderson, you're saying something about the window for this team. And Granderson's been better this year, but I don't know how much you're going to get out of him in 2016 and 2017. And it doesn't like you're going to get much out of Kadire this year, let alone 2016. So you're saying the window is basically this year and next year. And they're not acting like it. Yes, they've had a litany of injuries. That's terrible. And if you just want to pack it in, fine. Fucking pack it in. R.I.P. 2015 Mets. But, they're still sort of on the fringes of a race. And the Nationals aren't going to run away with it. You know, Steven Strasburg has a close to 6.9 ERA, which is pretty nice from our point of view. But, you know, Doug Fister is hurt. They still haven't gotten any games from Anthony Rendon. Who knows where they're going to get one. They're still kind of on... I'm not I'm not going to sit here and say, you know, Troy Tulewiski, Troy Tulewiski, Troy Tulewiski, or Carlos Gomez, Carlos Gomez, Carlos Gomez. But with Sandy Allison coming out and saying publicly, and read into that, whatever you like, that it's not the time to make a trade yet, do you think there should be more urgency around this team? Uh yeah, in, in in a ways. I mean, if if nothing else, to to show guys like uh, you know Matt Harvey that they're serious. <laughs> they're not signing Matt Harvey long term. Well, that that's what I mean. Like, oh, oh, is is he, why would he sign here if you know we can't even show that we're going to put 
together a competitive team when he's you know in his prime um so yeah i mean i'd totally feel like some sort of move is necessary but you know everything's a a slow play like i you know you don't want to look back in the past and complain too much but even things like starting michael conforto you know down single a this year rather than double a like maybe you could even look to him for for some offense honestly I i feel like his his bat's pretty close to major league ready, you know. From and what that I've was seen, was the idea when they drafted him theoretically, right? Because he's out of college. I mean, so what? What do you? What? Why are you slow playing him? I, I don't. I don't understand. Just you know, things like that that put yourself in a position to help out an already you know anemic offense. But yeah, I, I'd say otherwise. Yeah, trade um, might have to come down the pike sooner than later this year. So how much of this is, and I've had this conversation offline with various people, this front office doesn't seem to like to be backed into a decision point. We've sort of seen it with sort of the six-man rotation. Like, they just can't say, all right, you know what, we're going to go with five guys, and we're going to demote Noah Syndergaard. So he takes his turn every five days in Vegas, gets regular work. Or we're going to commit to putting Dylan G in the bullpen. They're not really doing either of that. And Dylan G has come out and basically said he's been annoyed about that. You know, Matt Harvey's come out and said he doesn't really want a six-man rotation. You know, Noah Syndergaard is going to take the ball every, whenever, where and whenever they tell him to do that because he's a, you know, a 22-year-old pitching prospect. But you look at stuff like that. You look at the the good trades under the Alderson regime. They were basically under the gun for Beltrings. They weren't. They couldn't offer him. Uh, they couldn't offer him arbitration to get the peg that was written into the contract. So they had to deal him. You know, Marlon Bird, whatever they get from Marlon Bird, that's actually a, a waiver wire trade. You know, Ike Davis, was a, they were forced into a decision point. Now, they haven't been forced into a decision point yet this year because the team's sort of still around um, the wild card race. I say it's, it's Memorial Day, and last week when we did this podcast, I think they were still in first place. So a lot can change in a week. This has not been a good week, and I've had a few cocktails, so here we are. But generally speaking, they don't like to be backed into a corner to make a move. Like, it almost feels like they'd be okay if they go 83-79 and and miss the playoffs by two games, as long as they don't have to commit to, or they don't have to sort of push their chips into the center of the table whether it's a Tulowitzki deal or a Carlos Gomez deal or whoever else is available. They don't want to have to part with like a Noah Syndergaard or a Steven Matz or a Dilson Herrera. I could honestly see that happening. I mean, like you were saying, it seems to be a kind of mentality of not wanting to sacrifice or not wanting to lose in any kind of you know trade scenario or, or whatever. And you hear that over and over again, the people uh, from sort of, you know, whatever sources with knowledge of the organization's thinking, but, you know, or, or rival GMs, like, Sandy Alderson doesn't want to lose a deal. That's the sort of the perspective he goes into, so he gets very few deals done. And look, the deals he's made, I'll say, outside of the, uh, sort of the Torres for Pagan swap, which had some other things going on, uh, with regards to the field staff and whatnot, he's done a good job getting value for whoever he's traded. Absolutely. Like, even, look at the two... Deals coming out of spring, you know, Matt Nendecker for Jerry Blevins. Yeah, Jerry Blevins is hurt, but that was a good use of Matt Nendecker. 
you know, Corey Mazzoni for Alex Torres, he's kind of been a mess, but, you know, Alex Torres is the best strikeout percentage on this team. And he also has the highest walk percentage on this team. But, you know, he's a guy that looks like a major league reliever, and they got him for Corey Mazzoni, who might someday be a major league reliever. That's a good use of that asset. You know, Corey Mazzoni could very easily turn into Gonzalez Herman. And you see guys like Eric Cadell trending in that direction right now. But that's the kind of guy they traded with, with Corey Mazzoni. But, and that's before we even get into, you know, getting Vic Black and Dilson Herrera for a month of Marlon Bird and John Buck, or, you know, Beltran for Wheeler, which, you know, granted, is now four years ago. Or even getting Blake Taylor, who was a second-round pick for Ike Davis. So when he's been back into a corner, he's made good deals, but it's just not something that you see them going out in the market and being aggressive about improving the team. Well, I don't feel he, he thinks he has to be at this point. I mean, considering I mean, where they really, are. That's like a roster. Like, I mean, look at this roster. Right now, the, the 25-man roster, they have Danny Mono, Daryl Siciliani. Yeah, it looks more Anthony and more like Brecker. a 51s roster than I mean, a Mets roster. Like, For sure. I mean, if you really, like, look, I'm, it's great for these org guys that are getting, you know, lifetime access to MLB healthcare because they've gotten called up. You know, if they grind out six weeks of service time, they get a pension. That's great, and that's great for them. You know, it's a great human interest story, and I don't want to downplay that. You know, whatever. I've watched a lot of Danny Mino and Daryl Siliani, and I'll, you know, if you want their scouting reports, I'll give them to you, and they're not going to be pretty. And I don't mean to downplay how cool it is that they're in the majors playing for a professional baseball team. That's awesome. Good for them. But it did feel like, very subtly, the sort of stakes shifted when they had that 11-game win streak. And maybe this is a fan thing. Maybe it's my perspective. But those kind of stories would have been much cooler on the 2011 to 2014 Mets than they are right now. You're absolutely right, but I think they're also treading water right now. They're on the periphery of the wild card race, and I, I think with you know, I think he's again. It's going to slow play this. Like if a trade's going to be made, it's not going to be made anytime soon, but probably more like you know, deep into June or July or something like that, when other people are are more desperate. Like that's how you're going to win a trade, and as you guys are saying, that's what Alderson likes to do. So. I don't. I don't think he's gonna, you know, hand his shirt to anyone. But if a, if a trade is gonna be made, it's probably gonna be made later on. Um, yeah, when when the Mets situation maybe gets more desperate, or maybe gets so desperate that, that you you punt till next year. Well, the problem, the problem you run into then is it's like, would you rather win a trade on July fifteenth when you're five back of the second wild card, or you know maybe give up a little bit too much now when you're one back of the wild card and have more time to sort of make a move across more games across the course of the season. Well, like, that's the problem. you got to pick your spot. To that point, though, I mean, how often do you see, you know, blockbuster trades going down before the trade deadline? It's like not very... Piazza. <laughs> well, it's not very often. Oh, good. People are setting off fireworks in my neighborhood because it's Memorial Day. So, I mean, you know, in order to make trades, obviously, you need to have willing partners... And if, you know, the your partners are either asking for too much, what you know is, you know, objectively too much, or they're just not willing to deal their players right now because their status in their particular races is, is also uncertain, 
then there really isn't much that, you know, Alderson can do at this point, aside for just kind of tread water and wait to see what happens. Carlos Gomez. I would leap for that one. I mean, I would, in, there's a, there's a bunch of players I'd love to trade for, but if their particular teams aren't, no, I like you, you need yeah. teams gotta be, you gotta have to find a seller before you can be yeah. a buyer. So God knows what the Marlins will be doing in a couple months. Christian Yelich will be nice, too. <laughs> I don't think the Marlins are going to be doing next week. Uh, a win today probably uh, helped stave off the Fire Terry crew for a little bit longer, but if things continue to go downhill for the 2015 Mets, how soon until uh, TC's head is on the chopping block? I think he has for the rest of the season. If the season, you know, if the Mets end up just missing the playoffs, you know, just missing wild card or, or placing, you know, not even in the race, I think he's gone. But I think he has enough goodwill in the organization to to last the year. Yeah, I I, I think ownership slash this front office, they weren't here at the time, has some memory of the last time the Mets fired a manager at midseason and how that worked out. You know, we had several years of Jerry Ball. Um, and as, it's like sort of, what do you do? I mean, if you fire Collins and just promote Bob Guerin, does that really do anything? I know Tim Tuffles been sort of listed as a guy that might also take over if they if they clean out Collins and Guerin. But you know what? I know I'm not a big Wally Backman guy, but I would take Wally Backman over Tim Tuffle from everything I've heard about them as managers and their players' opinions on them. One polar opposite, and then you have the other polar opposite. Yeah, I mean, that's that's true, too. But, uh, you know, do you... There's no real, like, who's the big out... Is there a big outside hire? I don't really see that happening either. Are the world possibly manage, pay two managers for the rest of the season? I don't know. Um, but I do think... I think you're right. If, if, you know, at the end of the day, they go 81 and 81, they're not picking up Collins' option for 2015, 2016, and they'll just sort of go from there. You know, Sandy will get his second manager, and then after that, everybody's head is on the chopping block. There's precedent now, so, you know, Sandy could become the next manager. Just saying. (laughs) I joked about that last week on the show, that would be the most... uh, Yeah, I know. Just complete conflagration on Mets Twitter if Sandy Alderson appointed himself over, like, Wally Backman. It'd be amazing. Incredible scenes. Hashtag banter and all that. So the Mets are going to be six-man rotations, supposedly. Uh, starting probably early next week. Dylan G will make another rehab start in Binghamton on Wednesday. Which, if it, if it does nothing else, then other than push Michael Fulmer back to a weekend so I can go up there and watch him, I'm happy with that. Even if Dylan G isn't so happy having to make another rehab start, and really even the second one was probably um, superfluous. But we sit now on the precipice of a six-man rotation, probably starting around June 1st or so. Is it something we can get angry about? Because I'm ready to get angry about it. Angry in the sense that it's just, again, the organization kicking the can down the road when they really need to be making a decision here. But, I mean, I don't know how much of an impact it'll have on the actual performance of the pitchers themselves. Yeah, I mean, obviously Matt Harvey has already expressed his displeasure right. with this. 
I mean, I recall reading somewhere that Harvey actually does better when he's on more rest. So that's kind of so the, the yeah, ironic. They've they've said he's done better on more than five, uh, more than standard rest. There's a difference between being on more than standard rest and being on two extra days rest. Because over the course well, of the actually, season, you're going to get days off here and there. When you get days off on a six man and it's a seven day sort of rotation, I could see that being an issue for him. The sample size is extremely small on uh, six that. plus day rest, but mm. but it's he's his numbers are actually insane with uh, six plus days. I don't have it in front of me, but I've actually been doing a lot of research on this. I'm trying to put a, together a piece that hopefully get published sometime in the next week or so. But yeah, it's he's got like a point six three ERA in like six plus you know days of rest or whatever. But and that includes you know this, like this, the this, seven day rest start against the Phillies where he wasn't sharp. <laughs> Right, right. I mean, the, there's yeah a, a lot of anecdotal things either way, but from the the things that I've looked at, um, it, it really doesn't look like there's any effect whatsoever uh, as far as like no no bad effects from getting extra rest, uh, and certainly it seems like that would be a beneficial thing to to this team who's working in a bunch of young arms and young arms coming back from injury. So, like, I don't know. I, I think it's maybe even worth looking into, not just for, a, you know, short term, but when you, when you got guys like Matts and even next year Wheeler coming in, you know, somebody's got to break ground sometime, and, you know, maybe maybe the six-man's not a bad way to go. Like I, like I was just saying real quick, like the, the numbers as they are don't seem to say anything bad about longer rest, and that's on, like, irregular, you know, Regular starts and, and things like that, rather than even if you get in a rhythm, you would assume that would probably, at, you know, at least stay the same, if not get better. So, I, I don't see any reason not to do it if you're looking to save bullets for you know your big guys. I, mean, I get the the saving bullets argument. They have to do something to because they're going to limit, you know, Harvey and Syndergaard and probably even Degrom's innings. I just don't know as. Do you want to win? Because if you want to win, taking starts away from Matt Harvey and Jacob DeGrom and giving them to Dylan G is probably not the best idea. Well, at the same time, you could also say you're going to be giving those starts to you know, possibly Stephen Matz. Instead I, of, you yeah, know, I think he would give the team to do a that, better. But I don't right, see that happening. It's like in, in theory. And it really comes down to, like, what are, you, are you trying to stretch your guys out for 2016? Like, at some point... I mean, you gotta win again. It sort of gets back to the idea that like this year feels different than years past. Like, and this is a better team than it's been in the last few years. But I, I, I'm more antsy. I'm more annoyed. I'm more cranky watching it because it feels like they should be competitive, and they're acting like, oh, if we, you know, we make the playoffs, whatever. If not, well, there's been some injuries, and we're stretching Matt Harvey out, and you know, Noah Syndergaard's on a on a on an innings count, and. Maybe Steven Matz, we want to get him Super 2 for next year. It's just like, just win fucking baseball games. It's been eight years. Win some damn games. I don't care. Light all their UCLs on fire. <laughs> this is like my stump speech for pitch talks. Like, I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> but that's like the attitude. It's like, <clears throat> we want to maximize our... We're going to get all these pitchers healthy at the same time, and then we'll, yeah, then we'll go for it. We're going to go for it there. Well, you've got X number of million dollars com- committed to David Wright, Michael Kadire, and Curtis Granderson next year. And a large chunk of that you might be able to just light on fire. And all your arb awards for these guys is great young pitchers. You know, guys like Matt Harvey, 
Lucas Duda. They're all, you know, that's going to take up a big amount of the money that's coming off the books. With Daniel Murphy, Cologne, and... Why am I forgetting? There's somebody else coming off the books, right? Murphy, Cologne, they're probably non-tender G. Jerry Blevins. But that gets eaten up. And then you're counting on ownership to, you know, find another $10, $15 million somewhere to fill rather large holes in this team. And I don't necessarily see that happening. I mean, we'll see where they are in... I think I said back after the 11 games, we'll see where they are on Memorial Day. Well, guess what? We're recording a show on Memorial Day. They're in second place, and the Braves are nipping at their... The fucking Braves are nipping at their heels. And yes, everyone on this team has been hurt. I understand that. It's a brutal cascade of injuries. But there are ways to work around that. Yeah, that was a pretty epic rant, man. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> now we'll move on to your emails. Before we do emails, we do housekeeping. It's Amazing Avenue Audio, episode 119. Amazing Avenue Audio is the official podcast. Your SB Nation New York Mets site, Amazing Avenue. You can find us on Twitter. Oh, wait. I should do this right. You can find us on the internet at AmazingAvenue.com. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Amazing Avenue. And join our Facebook group at facebook.com backslash Amazing Avenue. Find the podcast on iTunes. Just search for Amazing Avenue Audio and you can listen or subscribe right there. I encourage you to do both. I also encourage you to rate and review the podcast. You can also find the podcast on the Stitcher app. Download directly from blogtalkradio.com backslash Amazing Avenue wasn't the embedded player that goes up in the podcast post at Amazing Avenue proper. I'm your host, Jeffrey Paternostro. You can follow me on Twitter at Jeff Paternostro. You can also see me this Thursday at Pitch Talks at BB King's Bar and Grill on 42nd Street in Manhattan. Tickets are still available. Go to pitchtalks.com. Use the offer code Paternostro and you get $5 off your ticket. My co-hosts this week are Steve Sippa and Brian Renzi. You can find them on Twitter, which was the reason I was looking at Brian's Twitter handle while trying to do the opening to housekeeping, which is why it was kind of a shit show. At uh, Steve Stephan at BREN78. That was the housekeeping. These are your emails. You can email the podcast at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. Now, before we do emails, I thought we were going to do, I thought we were going to be going over, you know, absurdism and Albert Camus. Come on now. No, I did so. <laughs> so I, I Brian did, asked me what was going to be on the show this week. I did some, and I said, and, "David uh, Wright's back injury." What did I actually? I got the exact quote here. While I'm, <laughs> what is going to be the topics for the podcast this week? And me being a a smartass with that spent too many years in college, I came back with. Oh my lord. Like, yeah, writes back six man rotation, Camus critique of existentialism and suicide. Yes, that was in reference to uh, his essay on the myth of Sisyphus, which well, I had I to read at some point in a Camus class. I don't want to say that I have this big thing written, but go I'm ahead. Do you want to talk about? <laughs> do you want to talk about Camus' myth of Sisyphus on the podcast? I'm going to let it go. No, I actually don't. Okay, so. that's fine then. Yeah, we moved on to your emails. And our first email is from 
Liam. Hello there, Jeffrey and compatriot. After coming home from Philadelphia, I live there most of the year, I'm allowed to call it that, I was elated where my Mets were. Felt that it had been confirmation of what the Mets were preaching, and as of tonight, I want to say to you, cancel the season. Actually, the subject line for the email is, cancel the season. You may ask, why are you making such a snap decision this far into the season? Like, look, we did it for the fucking first half of the show, so. <laughs> the answer, Juan Lagares dropped a ball. Never in my 21 years alive did I ever think such an event would happen. Walking outside, I saw small children crying, and Mr. Met commit sepicue. This is truly the end times long foretold by the images formed by Mike Piazza's back knee. With that aside, I am writing to you to ask about this lineup. Now, this is completely theoretical. It kind of denies the current reality. But I feel that's where most fan, fan, Mets fans spend their time. If we traded Murph, put Herrera at second. Wright and Doughboy. D yeah, I, I assume so. Alright, yeah, yeah, like fine. Dough yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 I know. I'm just looking at it. Alright. Yes, I put that in to make you wince. I'm just confused. Comes back and says <laughs> solid to above average. And Kadire isn't a complete dumpster fire. Is it then a slightly above average lineup? figure if you have two competent defenders in Wright and Herrera, you can punt defense on shortstop a tad. Um, David Wright is gone to live on a farm upstate where he can run around and be free. I don't know. What do you think, Liam? P.S. If you had to start a bar and hire Mets players for your staff, who would they be? It would be two to three bartenders, two waiters, two busters, two to three bouncers, one manager. I will let you include prospects. Enjoy. Um, so none of that's going to happen because David Wright is going to live with a nice family at a farm upstate. Mm. Mm. I mean, we're really, we're really banking on Travis Darno coming back and hitting dingers. I mean, that's the... what this all comes down to with a broken pinky, which does tend to affect power. And it could be a decent offensive lineup, but it could also be terrible because there's just so many ifs involved. You and know? it's been pretty terrible so far. So yeah, <clears throat> there's that. And you're really just you know pushing out Ploiecki for Darno. I don't know. I don't know. If it's yeah. I don't know. I don't know. Wallagars is also playing hurt, which is not helping his defense. So, if you had to start a bar and hire, we'll get to the meat of the question <laughs> right away. Yeah. If you had to start a bar and hire Mets players to your staff, who would they be? I feel like a bartender needs to have pretty good hands. I was mixing cocktails. You got to have good hands. So I want uh, the best hands in the system I've seen so far. Are Luigi Yorme. Ahmed Rosario, he might spill some stuff, but it's fine. You get a little spillage in there. Um, and Travis Darno, he's a very good framer. Mm. So I feel like he could he could draw the draw the cocktail in well. That's what I'm going with for the bartenders. I was I thinking more on the the personality. Okay, uh, that's fair. Things with bartenders, but yeah. So like I, I was feeling like. Uh, Kadire and Vic Black would, you know, hold hold court with pretty much anyone. Kadire can um, do magic tricks too, which is always a, <laughs> a good thing at the bar, I suppose. I went the same. It's, it's very that's very like Reno casino bar like level magic tricks probably, but that works. <laughs> I went the same one. I went Grandison, Kadire, and Dave Racanello. Dave Racanello, yeah, nice I mean, choice. If you could bullshit with anyone, Dave yeah, Racanello is probably the guy to probably, bullshit yeah, with. Yeah, he's heard all the bullpen stories, so mm-hmm. he can definitely lend an ear. I like that. Dave Racanello is a good choice. So, Buster. Like... No, go ahead. 
I was just saying, I like Granderson too, but he, I feel like he's a, a multi-talented guy when it comes to this because he's, he's so personable. Like it's, it's hard to say whether you put him as a bartender, manager, waiter, or what, you know, because like, I, I, yeah, I think he could fit into a number of slots. Yeah. I think for waiters, you got guys that need people that can move in a crowd. Can put, I feel like David Wright's sort of your, your waiter. He's sure. very personable, but sort of like in like a blandly blank way that he can just sort of interact with whoever, right, whatever right. the clientele is. It doesn't really affect him. We're carrying several plates at once is uh, yes. tough on the back. It's true. <laughs> that is true. But I like Ligaris, like you're saying, being able to you know kind of be live and move yeah. through traffic well. I think uh, you know Cindergard might be a kind of a quirky choice there. Like uh, you know, he's got a little. He's tall, so he can get like the trays of drinks over everyone if it's crowded too. Mm-hmm. True, true. That's a good. The height, point. the height might be an advantage there actually. I mean, I think for bouncers, it's got to be Lucas Duda. Is he's a yeah. good look? Yeah, I just I can I... see him just in like a three-piece suit with an earpiece, just completely like, <laughs> blankly staring off into space. And just like throws you out of the bar, like just like you gotta go now. I mean, if that's you it, have, if you have three bouncers, I went with Brad Week, Josh Prevost, and Martirius Arias. I see with all the tall Savannah I mean, pitchers. Six nine two fifty five, six eight two twenty five, and six seven one two ten. Who are you? You know, who's gonna get out of line with those guys? That's true. Yeah. I see I was, Anthony I was, Recker making it work too. Yeah, no, I was, I was considering Recker, Familia, and and Mayberry, maybe another tall guy in there. Mayberry's a big dude. Yeah, it would work. I feel like Wrecker can wear like one of those like suits. I'm just like doing this all like Vegas bars. I don't know why I have that in my head right now. <laughs> all right, who's who's running your shop? Who you put in charge of the bar? Yeah, uh, you know it depends which way you want to run your team. But you know it could be I think either Cologne or you could go the other way, go Granderson. I was thinking Cologne myself too. It's a lot of experience. He just has some gravity to him beyond, yeah. you know, the obvious joke about his weight. But like, you know, he he, he just he, he seems like he's you know seen some things. So yeah. like he, he he you know you talk to him, you you feel the authority coming from him one way or the other. Like if he's he's telling a story or joking around, or he's you know telling you to get the fuck out. You know, either way. I could just see you just like. Uh... You guys speak with the manager. They just take you into back room. Bartolo Colon's just there, like counting out hundred dollar bills on the table, <laughs> but, like not even acknowledging you. Like Jairus Familia's next to him with an earpiece, like telling him what's going on. He's like, yeah, he's just nodding. Says something to Familia, and you just get, you know, you end up in a shallow grave somewhere outside of uh, Henderson, Nevada, or something. Absolutely. Bartolo Colon has spoken. Our next email is from Rob, dear baseball savants. Jeffrey, you know, you, sk- you skipped over the bussers, though. Like... Did I skip over the bussers? Yes, you did. Holy well, there's God. only there's only one guy that would be a good busser, and it's Juan Lagares because he does not drop anything. Fair enough. Yeah. I went with, like, I feel like bussers are often the most kind of sulky, downtrodden group in a, in a restaurant, and so I went, like, you know, Nice G Tejada. But... <laughs> I need more vodka. I need more vodka. I'm drinking coffee. I'm being good. Mm. I'm being very good. Uh, I think email is from Rob. Uh. Dear baseball savants, 
Jeffrey has made a clear favors acquiring Carlos Gomez. Yes, he has. He will do it again. A, what would be a logical package for him? B, what would the Mets outfield sitch look like for rest of season and next season? I'm assuming Gomez would play right and Gomez would shift to left. Sure. Or Gomez will play center and Gomez will shift to right. I don't care. Just, I want to see Carlos Gomez. But what about untraded Mets outfield prospects like, prospects like Brandon Nemo next year? Oh, Rob. And C, would putting a guy who derives so much of his value from defense and right field be an efficient allocation of resources, given what it would take to get him? Would Jose Batista be a better target? Sure, fucking trade for Jose Batista. I don't care. He's also a former Mets prospect. It was his plate discipline and injury history to fit right in with the current team. Plus, he's a team option for next year at $14 million, which seems doable even by Mets standards. Maybe. Especially if they offload salary in the deal, which brings me to the parameters of a deal. I wouldn't expect the Blue Jays to tear the team down at this point after their busy winter. Wouldn't a trade of Batista for non-Ligaris Mets outfielders plus a starting pitcher and maybe a prospect make sense for both teams? Are the Mets getting warm by offering Kadire and Grand... I'm going to stop you right there. <laughs> the answer to that is no, but we'll come back to this. Plus Nisar Cologne and maybe a non-top five prospect. Jose Batista is really fucking good at baseball. Like, I just want to make that clear. Like, he's really good. Like, he's one of the 20 best players in baseball. Yeah, he's probably one of the 20 best players in baseball. I'm not going to look it up. But I feel safe in saying he's probably... Well, okay, I'm going to look it up. Hang on one second. I'm just going to go to fan graphs because I can pull that up faster. But, yeah, he also fits in as far as, you know, aging. Like, you know, he's already 34 on his way to 35 by the end of the year. Um... I don't know. He's he's scuffling right now, um, and the, the Mets he's have scuffling. A he has a one thirty rate of runs created plus. He's just hitting two teen or whatever. So uh, Jose Batista, the last five years, has it been that long? Jesus. By Fangraphs War, and again, this isn't you know it's single season war, but fine. Gives you a, maybe a, a range of what this player is. 6.4, 8.1, 2.9 in 92 games. 4.2, 6.2. Yeah, it's one of the 20 best players in baseball for the last five years. And this yeah. year he's walking almost as much as he strikes out. And he has a 8.20 OPS. And he can play third, he can play a little corner outfield, he can play first. He's a really good baseball player. And he's not making much money next year. Like Jose Batista's really good. Actually, look it up. Here we go. Batting leaders by tens. This is for 2010 forward. Jose Batista has been the sixth best player in baseball between Robinson Cano and Evan Longoria. He's been very good at baseball. He's been Who's worth first? roughly 30 wins. Who's first, Cabrera? Yeah, Miguel Cabrera. Then Trout. Who's right, right. played 277 less games, fewer games, than Miguel Cabrera. It's been a win and a half behind him. Because, <laughs> you know, G for Trout or get the fuck out. That sounds like a good mantra to me. <laughs> uh, but yeah, Jose Batista's great. I would trade for Jose Batista. Really? Even as age and, I don't know, right now he's what, it's, I mean, it's perfect because it plays in that sort of 15 to 16 window, I think. And you can play him at third with right out. You can move him to a corner. I do like that. You can play, you can spot Duda against a lefty every once in a while at first instead of Kadir or Mayberry. I think it's, you know, yeah, Jose Batista's awesome. 
He's a really good baseball player. Just get really good baseball players, then good things happen. Like, people want to maximize their dollars per war. But, like, you know, the Dodgers just say, fuck it, let's get good baseball players. Let's get all the good baseball players. Okay, them Cuba, Korea. They just get all the good baseball players. They get all the good baseball players, and we'll figure it out later. And guess what? They're a pretty good baseball team. Get more good baseball players. That, that's a good point. I, I mean, what what are we going to have to give to Toronto, though? To I get don't know. I, Toronto's player. weird because um, you get they some wanted... of the, like, moral hazard stuff because An- Anthopolis is not... <laughs> once he tears it down, he's pretty much done there. So they've kind of, like, kept committing to... They keep sort of doubling down, which isn't the worst thing to do. And even today, they're only four and a half out of first. You know, they're a good week away from being right back in the AL East race in the AL East race you know they might be able to win that division with 86 wins I mean there's no teams there that look remotely special by any stretch of the imagination must be nice yeah so they get a good week you know they go they win 10 of 12 which they could do and all of a sudden they're right in a play they're you know they're what a game off first at that point maybe or something like that you know the Rays aren't running away with it the Yankees aren't running away with it (laughs) quite the opposite um, the Orioles are not good. The Red Sox have no pitching. They're not that far off. Uh, you know, they just got Jose Reyes back. I think they're if they're going to fire sale, it'll be this off season. It won't be during the year, right? Uh, and if they they're going to want major league ready guys that aren't Michael Kadire for uh, for Jose Batista because he's really fucking good at baseball. I'm trying to figure out what the problem is with the Blue Jays right now. It's got to be their pitching. Yeah, oh, yeah. I looked at this the other day, and their pitching was awful. Poor Dickie. That, I mean, that's the thing. They'd be Dickie. asking, they'd want some, some good pitching back. and. Uh... I mean, yeah, they'd want like a major league ready, good young starter for Batista probably, which the Mets could offer. They could. But do you really want to do that? I, I honestly wouldn't Maybe. at this point. Maybe, yeah. I mean, it's not the worst use of young pitching talent in the world because Jose Batista is really good at baseball. I mean, Matt Bowman is now going to be pitching. Right? Uh, that's not, that's not, yeah, no. That's not getting you Jose Batista. It's not getting you, uh, what's the other Batista? It's not the Batista, right? Uh, it's not getting you Miguel Batista, probably. Is he still around? No. Okay. The email continues. Like... Can we get, we get to this email? Oh, yeah. Oh, no, it goes on. This is a long email. <laughs> oh. Usually I don't stop in the middle, but it's a long email. Also, what are the odds the next CBA results in the final reckoning for the Wilpon regime? Mm, not good. As I understand it, they're in hideous personal debt and starved the baseball team of revenues to service that debt. As I further understand it, they accomplished this and were able to refinance their debt in the last few years by making SNY, and not the Mets, the chief revenue source and value driver. SNY pays the Mets a below market fee for TV rights, resulting in the Mets having no money and the Wilpons continue to have the financial wherewithal to quietly resolve the sexual harassment lawsuits they need to. See attached. Oh, there's an attachment. I don't know what this is. I didn't click on this before. Oh, yeah, it's just a stipulation of dismissal with prejudice from the Leah Castagene case. Now I need to figure out a way to close this without... Okay. It's also a virus. It's going to steal your personal information. Yeah, fine. That's whatever. It's <laughs> what I deserve. A side effect of this shell game is that less money is designated as baseball revenue affecting luxury tax and revenue sharing calculations, among other things... With the next CBA, aren't the players going to try to impose limits on the ability of teams to leverage their co-ownership of regional sports networks to screw them over? And if that happens, if the Wilpons can no longer hide behind SNY, will we finally be rid of them? 
Finally, your thoughts on NXT TakeOver Unstoppable. Thanks, Rob. So we'll start with the... I don't... So nothing in the next CBA specifically is going to address whatever the Wilpons are doing. Because the Players Union has bigger fish to fry than whatever shell game the Wilpons are playing. So it just doesn't affect you know, the overall distribution of revenue. Yeah, maybe it's one fewer big market team in on free agents, but it just doesn't make a big difference. You know, the top end of the free agent class are doing fine. They're all getting their money. At the same time, they're, they're setting an example for how the shell game could be run for yeah, other sure. owners. So I, sure. I, I can understand why you'd want to, uh, you know, short circuit that in the, in the future, but it's not going to have any impact. You're not going to undo bank transactions already unfortunately so, right and, uh, and yeah. other teams aren't doing that because they want you know they're trying to strike more of a balance between the money they're they're they generally have a smaller stakes in these regional sport networks than the will ponds do and they're still getting like the dodgers we'll use that as an example they do have a, a chunk of that network that no one in la can watch but they're getting two billion dollars over the next 20 years or whatever it is but you are billions and the re- billions of dollars. So they don't. Yeah, it's not. But the networks, whether it's profitable or not, is 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 secondary. They right, don't. Like, the these mis- teams don't have an interest in making the network profitable at the expense of making the teams profitable because they aren't playing this game. I, I guess what I was looking at also is that the the Mets have shrunk the available um, payroll out there by you know sixty to it could be hundred million or whatever the, depending it's, on it's still divided over thirty teams in, a, in an industry that's flush with cash right now. I don't think it makes enough of a where you're going to see pushback is from the ownership side, not from the player side. I think. All right. There was already some no, grousing I... about you know the Mets getting extended this long line of credit from Major League Baseball, which they have since paid off, but I think they'll look, ownership will look more towards, well, you did this for the McCourts, why are you letting this sort of go on in New York? I mean, it doesn't That's look, what I'm saying. It, it, yeah, I am saying it too, but until, <laughs> literally until they miss a payroll payment, which is what brought it into focus for the McCourts, nothing is going to happen to the Mets, ownership. Now there's some, from what I understand, there's some rather large debt balloon payments coming up in the next couple of years, like there have been for the last couple of years. And whether they can make those without further refinancing, I don't know. And you know, from the bank's point of view, I've said this before on the, on the podcast, and I have no special knowledge of this. You know, I'm not Howard Magdal. I don't research this as a, as a matter of course. But from what you've seen in the industry. From the bank's point of view, yeah, kick the can down the road. You're going to get the money at the end of the day. If they have to sell, they're going to sell the New York Mets for billions of dollars. The value of franchises is only going up. They, they, the banks will get their money. They'll just keep grinding out the extra interest over the years until that happens. You know, when the when the piper comes, they're going to get paid. So it's just not that important to them to really worry about are the Wilpons financially stable? Because they own an incredibly valuable appreciating asset which is the New York Mets that's even SNY completely separate from this and there's really nothing even even if it wasn't sort of a C-League disciple in the uh, commissioner's chair right now I just don't see anything changing yeah sorry go ahead 
I was just say they've weathered the storm for this long, and yeah, they, honestly... they can definitely they can a few more years down the road. Yeah, this is sort they, of the new normal. They weathered the storm this long, and you know, Fred got appointed to the the financial responsibility committee. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, yeah, so... that's good for jokes on Twitter dot com, and I appreciate it too. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I don't know what to say about that. Steve, did you nobody, watch? Nobody Home? does. Yeah, nobody, nobody does. does really. It's just it writes itself. It is. It's all you can do is sit there gobsmacked. NXT Takeover Unstoppable. I have to say, I got home late from work, so I only saw everything on from the tag title match. So, if you have any strong feelings, Steve, about the uh, Finn Balor Tyler Breeze match or the women's tag, feel free to. Uh... Um. Well, I prefer Finn Balor with his uh, tentacle pseudopods as opposed to wings. We did yeah. wings. I, I meant to go back just to watch yeah. the intro, and I still have not done it yet. Uh, the tag team women's match was, it was just, it just was, you know, it was nothing good, nothing bad. Um, the, um... I didn't watch the tag title match with the Italian, I can't call them Italian stereotypes, they're kind of the their Italian own thing. <laughs> They're the realest guys, man. They They're are. The realest guys. I will say, those dudes are more over at Full Sail than, like, any... Like, more than, like, the Freebirds in Texas. It's crazy. How over Enzo Amore and, uh... Well, you, you can't teach that. You can't. It's, it's just, it's... And I, I think they'll be fairly successful when they go up to the main roster, too, because anybody that has, like, a big theme and sort of, like, speak sing-along intro will be fine. Exactly, and the dubstep cowboys just bore the crap out of me. So whatever, but they're all right. They're, they're fine. kind of yeah. They are they like are generic fun. WWE tag team. Exactly for what they are, they're they play the role fine. And the match itself was kind of just like there to sort of be a place filler for. Yeah, I mean, coming next, um, Enzo Mori is not a particularly good wrestler, and no. Big Cass is big. good for a big guy. But yeah, he's fine. Yeah, he's so very uh, he's very test ish to me. You don't watch their matches and uh, expect good wrestling. No, the tag division is kind of in, in dire straits with... No. The match, of the, the, the match of the night, obviously, was the women's match. Oh, it's like, I get that Twitter really loves Sasha Banks, and she's very good. I mean, I don't want to... She's very, very good. She's not the best wrestler in the world right now. <laughs> no, I mean... I mean, I mean, there I, there were people on Twitter.com and elsewhere, like, putting her match with Becky Lynch up there with, like, you know, Nakamura Bushi and Neville Zane 3 and the triple threat from the Royal Rumble. And I don't, like, I like Sasha Banks a lot. Her offense and her transitions are still a little stiff to me. It's just not quite as fluid as I would like. I think some of that was her wrestling Lynch who didn't really feed into it as well as she could have, but you're not going to get much better out of the women's division in NXT or on the main roster. Uh, the comp, I actually, I figured out the comp to, for her the next morning, and this is a very obscure comp, but uh, uh, Milano Collection AT was a wrestler in uh, Toriyaman and Dragon Gate, and he got hurt a bunch, ended up in New Japan towards the end of his run before he retired. But he's a dude that just came up fully formed as like oh my god this guy is good like he's just it everything about her that's not even the wrestling it's just she's clearly a, gonna be a star 
and the sooner they get her up, the, the better. I assume they're going to put Bailey over for the title at some point before that happens, which is fine. But she can really just have great matches with anybody right now, and she's not going to get. It's like, do you, can you, you know, working four minute matches with the Bella Twins? Is that going to work at the main roster? I don't know. But they're they're sort of building this interesting. They could, if they wanted to, build this interesting thing with her because they just brought in Uha Nation. I think they actually introduced him on that show. They have Uha, they have Neville, they have Banks. And they're not going to get Ricochet because he's in a long-term contract with Lucha Underground. So as long as that's around, they're not going to get him. You know, Triple H goes out on a uh, conference call this past week, I was told, and says the promotion he likes most right now is Dragon Gate and that he watches which was amusing to me. But there's been rumors they're in, they're in for Akira Tozawa, too. Um, and those guys are all friends, what I should say. Tozawa, Banks, Uha, Ricochet, Neville are all friends. I mean, outside of Banks, they've all wrestled in Dragon Gate. They could put, like, a real interesting stable together on the main roster with those guys. It's going to take time. But if they really sort of want to push Banks and sort of give her a group which would be an interesting sort of twist on the usual main roster stables to put a woman in front of, and like sort of in front. I think that would be the way to do it. Well, I mean, she's a good wrestler. You know, she's a decent wrestler. She's a good wrestler, but obviously her character is what makes makes her her. Yeah. So something that highlights her as a character and gives her character prominence would work better than just throwing her in some matches and say, here, impress some people with your moves in the ring. It could work. And I think that's kind of what happened to Paige when they brought her up last year. And pushed her, because she could have... She's very good in the ring, but it sort of is character promo-driven. And she just ended up in endless matches with the Bellas, and that was that. (laughs) Unfortunately. Uh, we should talk about the main event, which I thought was actually really good for what it was trying to be. Yeah, I mean, you have to take into account that Sami Zayn supposedly had an injured shoulder, and I recall reading from a while back that Kevin Owens was injured somehow as well. So if you take into account that both guys were injured, it was a good match for what it was, and obviously for what it was trying to accomplish. Right, It. it, it I, I, and I felt like sort of the early the brawl around the ringside fit in with the storyline with, you know, Zayn coming back for revenge and just sort of, like, overwhelming Owens here and there and then Owens hitting the powerbomb on the apron and just being like, fuck this shit. Now it's <laughs> now it's go time. Um, and Zayn, and the, I like they really put over the, the apron powerbomb as a killer. Like, he did not get up. <laughs> yeah, it was... Even after, like, they, that went over more than, like, a friggin', like, Steve Williams, Dr. Death backdrop on the floor to Kenta Kobashi in, like, mid-90s All Japan. Like, to protect the move that much was really impressive to me. And I thought that got it over. I wait, I don't know what you do, because you want to you introduce Samoa Joe there as a killer. I get that. And having Owens back down from him, I don't necessarily disagree with. Right, I mean, if you consider he just was in, like, a 15-minute match. Yeah. So I mean, I think they could, because they've worked around it. Had Owens and Joe brawl on the floor a little bit? I don't know. Maybe, like, have them brawl and have... Regal have all like the security and refs run out and separate them <laughs> to get make Owens look a little bit more like a monster heel because I like the way they're building him. I mean, having him come out and powerbomb John Cena on Raw, literally, we I think we have to sort of tie that in here too. Right. I mean, he's now probably a better heel 
in those five minutes in the last nine months of build for Seth Rollins. Pretty much. He just came out. He said, hey, John, John Cena, screw you. Screw you. I've been doing then... this longer than you have. I don't need any advice from you. I'm going to yeah. beat the shit out of you, walk off, stomp on the U.S. title. He's just... I don't know what's... I don't know how they work around the match at Elimination Chamber. Because if it was me, I, I would just put Owens over and I wouldn't blink an eye. I'd have him right. cheat somehow. I mean, they could go with like a double count out or DQ or something. But I would just put Owens over. If you want to really... make a guy, make a guy. Right. There's no reason to make John Cena win. Or at the least, there's no reason to make Kevin Owens lose. So I'm curious to see how they handle it. But I'm... For a guy that was never a big Kevin Steen fan on the Indies, he is one of the more intriguing guys, like up and down the roster, including the main roster to me right now. How they sort of handle this and how I keep seeing it. They these big indie stars, they go to the WWE and they get they don't get better per se, but they get sort of more focused on what works for them because they're not at sort of the mercy of working these like twenty five minute Japanese style matches. Right. In front of 500 people in Philly or, you know, for ROH or for Wrestling Gorilla or whatever. They can just really tighten it down to a 15-minute match, focus on their character, and it just works. You saw that with Daniel Bryan, I think, most, sort of most clearly. All of a sudden, he went from, you know, a guy that was like a good technical wrestler that you're, you know, was working 30-minute matches on the indie circuit with, you know, whoever, Chris Daniels or Low Key or... Claudio Castagnoli, or you know, whatever your indie guy du jour was, to sort of being a really good underdog babyface, and picking out five or six spots that really work well for him, and focus on his sort of bumping and selling, which were also excellent, mm-hmm. and just sort of shrinking that thirty-minute match down to like an eighteen-minute match. You could trim out the fat, and then you maximize you know the things that that work for you. So. That's our NXT TakeOver Unstoppable review. We can bring Brian back now. Hope you <laughs> fix yourself a drink or something. No, I was reading about the, you know, Camus' critique of Myth of Sisyphus. <laughs> oh, there you go. That's good, too. That's good use of your time. There's actually more wrestling coming up, but... And I, I disagree, Mr. Camus. I disagree. <laughs> our next email is from David. What's up, guys? Sitting here down in SFL. I don't know where that is. South Florida? South Florida, I would guess. Knocking out a few IPAs, and a few things came to mind about the Mets. Oh, and one wrestling one. So I figured, let me see what you guys think. One, we'll take these as, as we do for the quick hits kind of thing. We'll take them in the order they're given. Mm. One, would you draft Brady Aiken if you're the Mets and he's sitting there in the second round? I would. I would also. Yes. Yes. Okay, I'll agree with you guys. You sound like you know what you're talking about. I mean, they don't <laughs> do this. They could have had Jeff Hoffman last year and Lucas Giolito two years before that though I think the calculus gets a little different when you're down in the picking in the 50s instead of the teens mm-hmm. and I don't think Brandy, Brady Aiken will be there because no, some, not a chance. someone of the Nationals or Tigers will pop him before then I would say that seems like something they would do but yes I would I mean, I would take, uh, I suppose, Matuella, too. You mean, if you want to punch for upside at that point. Two, Gavin Cicchini might be ready by 2016. Would you be shocked if next season's spring training battle is Reynolds versus Cicchini versus Rollins? Rollins? 
I would Jimmy be Rollins. very. I would be very Seth surprised. Rollins? Exactly, Seth Rollins. <laughs> he cashed in his money in the bank. He can't <laughs> make it. Shortstop, yeah. Could oh. be a good time to do it. You mean Mets shortstop cashing in money in the bank <laughs> spring training 2016? And if so, are you okay with that? Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, I would not be shocked if Chikini be... gets a look early 2016. I haven't seen him yet this year because he was hurt the entire time I was in New Hampshire. But I'm. I'm Excited to see him theoretically, um, or they might just still play Wilmer Flores there because uh, God hates you. There's no meaning to the universe, and Camu was right. Twenty home runs, man! Twenty home runs. What's your take on Casey Meisner? Could he lead the way in the next next wave of top Mets prospects by 2017? Yeah, a good chance with anybody, I guess. And we talked about Meisner a lot last week with Toby, but he wouldn't be my pick. 2017. 2017 Mets number one Met prospect will probably be whoever they draft in 2016. Or maybe Michael Conforto, I don't know. If he's not up by then. Ahmed Rosario, <laughs> Ahmed Rosario. He could still be in the system. Ahmed Rosario? I don't know. Yeah, it's not really asking the next next wave. I guess uh I don't know. There'll probably be like one of the IFA dudes, like Carlos Espedes or Ali Sanchez, who should come stateside this year. Marcos Molina, finally back after a uh, the inevitable Tommy John surgery yeah, coming off his right elbow strain. I don't know. I'm sure he's already had it at this point, and they just haven't. They haven't announced it like in three days yeah. afterwards. Yeah. Let's get oh, to the. Oh, by import- the way, Tommy. You know, yeah, yeah, that's what they do with Tapia. Let's get to the important question. Four, if I could create an all-time wrestling main event, just ring performance, this would be it. Headlining WrestleMania would be a 60-minute three-way Iron Man match between Bret Hart, the Great Muda, and Ric Flair. So, I don't like Iron Man matches or three-way dances. So, I'm, I'm probably going to go with a, with a singles match. But what do you have, Steve? I just went, I mean, I, I actually spent like maybe 10, 15 minutes thinking like, who would I want to see? And at first, I just wanted a singles match, and I was like, "Well, I got to get this guy in." And then I was like, "Oh, I got to get this guy in." So it went from a singles match to a triple threat to a fatal four-way. <laughs> <Jesus>. <laughs> so we have Kota Ibushi versus Adrian Neville versus Ricochet versus ACH. So I'm sure you could have some sort of interpromotional titles thing going on there. Too. Yeah, that could still happen on like an Evolve main event or something this year, probably. Yeah, I would. I'm. I'm fairly set in my ways at this point, and I considered... So for me, the the best on a straight-up sort of in-ring you know, encompassing whatever that means. That's not just, you know, technical wrestling per se. That can be selling, bumping, persona, charisma, like keeping it sort of in-ring. But the best... The best Wrestler I've ever seen is Toshiaka Kawada. Mm. So I could just have Kawada Misawa again and watch it one more time. That would be great. But I tried to go a little more more creative. And I would think I'd like to see Kawada sort of work as the... Because he was always sort of working as the guy trying to topple the man. Because Misawa was always the dude in All Japan. I'd like to see him work more as sort of the dude. And I'd like to see him go against Eddie Guerrero. 
that would be a good match with Eddie like doing whatever he can to sort of yeah, yeah. get an advantage and just Kawada just kicking his head off every time he tries it and I don't know how I would how I would would book it probably would end with Kawada like just dodging the frog splash and just kicking Eddie's head off let him go like 35-40 minutes and really build it because those, those are the two dudes for me like I like my Dragon Gate guys and I would watch you know peak you know Shima sort of at the peak of his powers in like 2005 against just about anybody too Shima Liger around that time would have been fun too they had a match on one of the later Super J Cups I think it was like 2001 it was like a Shima Liger semi-final or final it was pretty good but only went like 14 minutes that's something that threw me off because I was thinking like hmm who would like two of the best guys I could imagine having a match and I said okay well Brian Danielson and Kenta okay well that's been done already yeah well Loki and Kenta well no that's been done already <laughs> and so, a lot I mean, of these matches tend to sort of uh, I think disappoint too yeah I mean you have expectations extent. are going to be sky high even if they deliver a five star match you know you're going to be expecting a six star match can I throw in an idea that I'm I'm, I'm just thinking about listening to you guys talk anyway yeah, sure. like sure. well I mean just just from I guess uh, uniqueness standpoint or something you know maybe do like a, a Royal Rumble intergender sort of deal where you've got a, a situation where nobody can get thrown out for like the first I don't know 15 20 minutes 30 minutes if you like your Iron Man matches or whatever and like actual relationships and whatever can like form and dissolve within the you know the context of that and you know you got th- you know people tag teaming th- you know three three men on one whatever like it you know it, it it could be filled with all sorts of pathos and and intrigue all the way through i don't i don't know like it i don't think that's something that's been done before right so i will say dragon gate doesn't do that per se but they have a, a fairly regular match type match stipulation where it's like a cage match escape rules and the last person in loses either their hair or their mask there's usually the big blow off to a few and there's usually mm-hmm. six or eight people from different stables in it so that you see some of that kind of stuff go on and they can't escape for a certain amount of time usually and this year they made it really weird where you had a second for the match that could be from a completely different stable their hair mask hair slash mask were also on the line and you couldn't escape until you pinned someone else in the match and once you did that your second was safe but you weren't safe until you escaped it got very complicated as they tend to do uh, in Dragon Gate but yeah it went on for like 45 minutes I don't think anyone escaped to like the 20 minute mark or whatever so and people turned on each other whole stables dissolved across the course of the match so that kind of stipulation could be cool I think maybe putting them in a cage with escape rules outside of sort of like the standard over the top uh Royal Rumble type battle royal rules might work as well. And actually, the best, the best recent match I've seen was like a it was a six on six elimination tag. Uh, it was a Dragon Gate match, of course. Uh, six on six elimination tag between two of the rival stables. I think at the end of two thousand twelve or two thousand thirteen. I have to go back and look it up. But uh, where nobody got eliminated until the 25-minute mark, and they spent, like, most of the first half of the match just brawling around Corican Hall. It was awesome. <laughs> so I think multi-man matches like that can work if there's a, enough of a story behind them. Oh, yeah, I mean, anything could work if there's enough of a story behind it. Our final email is from JJ Mack. 
who I think actually gave me the recipe for the coffee that I'm drinking right now, which I needed desperately. So thank you, JJ. Ahoy, Jeffrey, an amazing avenue writer who drew the short straw this week. I should say the subject line for this email is, let's check in with Kevin, and then parentheses, Plowecki. As Kevin Plowecki is nearing the 100-plate appearance mark for his MLB career, I thought now would be a good time to evaluate the young catcher's first taste of big league action. While expectations of league average offense have been thoroughly dashed for the moment, I still don't get the sense that he's been overmatched at the plate. Although nearly all my mess consumption occurs via radio, which tends to diminish one's analytical confidence. The biggest concern seems to be the jump in K-rate, 21.4%, this writing compared with a career minor league K percentage of about 11%, from what I can tell is driven by his very poor contact rate on stuff outside the zone, O contact percentage of 38%, versus a league average of 66%, according to a probably very out-of-date Fangraphs article on the subject. My likely inaccurate supposition is that Plowecki is having trouble with good breaking stuff, but I'm writing you for what I hope will be a better, or at least better informed analysis. What are your eyeballs telling you about Kevin Plowecki, big leaguer? Is this a matter of making adjustments, or an example of a guy needing more work in the minors? How does one delineate between the two? And does the data set alter how you view the longer-term prospects of young Monsieur Plowecki? Excelsior, JJ in California. P.S. Does anyone else get the feeling this could have been Cesar Fueyo's moment? <laughs> Alas, the asymptotic dreams of prospect watchers. Um, no, you've been a J.J. Uh, he's flailing at breaking stuff. Major League breaking stuff is tough to hit. And I think I wrote about him when I saw him in Binghamton, I think the second time. You kind of see it. He had... Look, so here's the thing about hitters. Good Major League hitters, bad Major League hitters, prospect hitters... Good breaking balls get everybody out. You have a good breaking ball you can start in the zone and put it there back foot or down and away. Nobody's hitting that. That's just the way it is. Good breaking stuff, good soft stuff away gets everybody out. You know, Plowecki has looked a little overmatched at times. I said sort of the same thing about Delson Herrera early in the season. Um, you have to be patient with catchers. 100 plate appearances, not nearly enough. We went through this with Travis Darnot. There's a whole other set of skills he's sort of learning on the job right now as a major league catcher. But, you know, will he go down when Darno comes back up? I think so. I think that's the right decision. And it's not, you know, get him get him right, send him back down for a couple months, let him feast on AAA pitching, get his confidence up. And maybe he comes back and becomes more of the hitter we thought he would be at the major league level. The defense is another story, and he's actually been a little bit worse than even I expected, and I've groused about this on the podcast. There were a lot of national writers last offseason, none of whom saw Kevin Ploiecki catch dudes live that were putting much higher grades on his glove than I would, and he's been very stiff on balls in the dirt. Look, the arm's not great. You can live with the arm, but he's been very stiff on balls in the dirt. He's letting ball. You know, they get recorded as wild pitches. Fine. These are balls he has to block. And he's a big dude, you know, taller than you might like for a catcher. It's a little stiff going side to side on balls in the dirt. And those balls get by him or they get far enough away from him that with that arm, guys aren't afraid to take extra bases on him. And that's a problem. You know, if he was hitting 270, would that be a problem? Not so much. He's hitting 220. 
So that's why we're here. And that's what he needs to go back down to work on. Yeah, he needs to be sent down to NXT. And, uh, <laughs> yeah. And work. <laughs> For sure. Uh, or we're done with Armbar Avenue, I guess, for the moment. That's fine. I, I think Plaw would be a decent, like, bring him in as, like, a heel bodyguard for Owens. They have similar <laughs> physiques, so I can see that they working. They do. No, I mean, I, I think he's definitely got a big league bat, you know, in him. Uh, I mean, definitely like, like the stroke. I think he, you know, regularly drives the ball with power, you know, as far as a lot of deep outfield flies not quite deep enough for our liking at the moment but I, th- I think yeah it's it's just the big thing for him is just getting consistency at the plate and and that's what some time in the the minors is going to do you get more reps um he's yeah he chases stuff out of the zone um you know when he gets his pitch he doesn't always hit it uh, he, he's he's got to definitely improve on recognizes recognizing the pitches that he can handle Right, because he, he even there there's some like inside pitches where he's like, oh, I, I can hit that, and then he just gets jammed horribly and, and things like that. But he, you know, yeah, basically he's, he's got to pick up his, his recognition, and that sort of stuff is is only going to come with uh, some some more reps in the minors. But yeah, as, as you say, the defense, I, I don't really know what can be done so much there for, as far as his arm. You're not going to improve his arm. But um, I don't know. I, I, I like him as somebody you, you dangle in your uh, your cargo trade because, um, yeah, the Brewers don't have any catchers doing any. They're all hitting lower than Ploiecki is right now. And uh, they're, they're also missing second baseman and, and pitching. You know, we, we got some pieces for your, your cargo trade anyway. Rob Castellano no longer hosts this show, so you don't have to uh, hype a Carlos. Oh, you're thinking about Carlos Gomez. Yeah, you say sorry. cargo. I think Carlos Gonzalez. Sorry, my, my bad. Car- cargo part two. Car- right? yeah, yeah, Carlos Gomez needs a different nickname. Isn't he go? Isn't he go go? Go go. I could. I could get behind I that. So, because if we need to delineate between Carlos Gomez and Carlos Gonzalez, that's a good enough way to do it. I feel like. Yeah, I'm okay with that. <laughs> uh, any. Any final words for Cesar Pueyo? Anyone? Uh, well, getting back to the question that we had earlier about the Mets bartenders and the Mets bar, mm. Cesar Pueyo would actually be one of my waiters along with Brandon Allen because then we could complain about Brandon Allen stealing Pueyo's tips. <laughs> uh, yes. But that's all I have to say about his career. Yeah. You know what? Good for him. He's getting a major league paycheck right now. Mm. So he's made the system work for him. But yeah, he would be uh, useful. But apparently yeah, he has a broken back, which might actually be, and I don't want to like downplay it, he might actually have a broken back. But This would be a good time for Cesar Pueyo to do things, baseball-related or otherwise. Those are your emails. Once again, you can email the podcast at podcast at amazingavenueaudio.com. We will, of course, wrap things up this week with your IFK Gothenburg update. And, uh, you know, top of the league. We're top of the league. IFK Gothenburg, we're top of the league. It's nice to have a winning team. It is. It's the one. I actually went out, went back and looked at the crunch the numbers since we adopted IFK Gothenburg as the official soccer team of the podcast. They are 13-1-1 one, one with a plus 29 goal differential. 
They added to the good times this week with wins over their historical rival AIK out of Stockholm. It was 3-0 last Thursday. And yesterday they snuck one out on the road on the road against Homestead with a literally the last kick of the game. Uh Jacob Andressen. They were on the break. I mean they were up the whole game, never got a second. You know, Homestead got a soft equalizer and the nobody marked a guy running into the box, he basically got a tap in. It looked like it was gonna end one one, Homestead got a late corner, IFK cleared, broke. You know, Andressen was basically free into the box, but the pass was behind him. So he stopped, brought it in, let two guys run by him, just outside the box, curled one to the top corner, last kick of the game. Good road win against the you know a, a team that's at the bottom of the table. Three points are three points, and IFK stays on top of the Allsvenskan Liga. Well, that's how it should be done, and the Mets should take notice. Yeah, good times. You got to finish. They've got finishers. I will say I've been watching. So they've been playing a lot of Monday Thursday games, so I've been catching up on the highlights on their uh, YouTube channel, which I, is just all Spencer Liga GBG. And they have like really extended highlights. Like it's a half hour of highlights. They give you the full pregame, wow. like halftime interviews. It's all in Swedish, so we the get the full only pregame. Ninety minutes long. <laughs> I know you get the full <laughs> pregame. You get like halftime interviews with the manager, like the halftime uh, commentary, and just, like all the highlights. So it's great. But one thing I have noticed, no, like, every goal it seems like Gothenburg scores because the goalkeeper on the opposing team just can't catch the ball. Like, he just knocks it down with his chest and it goes to a Gothenburg player and they score. Playing the Mets, basically. It is, basically. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> so it all ties in nicely. But hey, you know, win is a win. You just get those three points. Keep moving on. They're almost a, uh, they might be a third of the way through the season now. They're top of the, uh, table. And who I thought was going to be their biggest uh, rival, Malmo FF, who won it last year, has been struggling. You know, they're all the way down in uh, I think 5th now? 6th? 5th. So they've got a a couple of big games coming up. This week they've got Jurgarden, who's in 3rd. So that's their big uh, Their next big matchup next Monday at the Gamlo Yevi, so they're home for that. Gamlo Yevi just rolls off your tongue. It like gets crazy there, there, man. I've seen, and they've got Elfsberg, who's in second, the following uh, Thursday. So this is a big week for them. They can put some distance between them and their their main rivals for the Elfsvenskan Liga title. Let's hope that happens. Then it's getting exciting. We'll definitely. I for one am pumped. I am too. <laughs> I am also pumped. We'll update you on that. We'll update you on David Wright's back and uh, anything else that might happen in the interim next week on Amazing Avenue Audio.